Richard War, a single man and a priest, he puts it well. He says, it is not our sexuality, but our way of seeing sexuality that demands radical surgery, that demands to be cut off. What he's saying is that Jesus, what he's wanting us to do, he's wanting us to examine how we view sex and sexuality in a way that leads to flourishing and wholeness. And this is what Jesus is doing in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a formula that he's sticking to. He will quote a law that he says, you have heard that it was said, and he will state a law that goes back to Exodus and Leviticus in the Old Testament. And then he's going to deconstruct that law, what people believed about that law, and construct a new ethic that leads to wholeness and flourishing. Last week, as we mentioned, he did this with murder. And he points to the underlying anger that leads to murder. This week, he applies that to adultery and the underlying lust that leads to adultery. And so in doing, Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. He's not just speaking to the place of sex, but the place of sexuality in our life. Sex is an action. If you're not sure what it is, ask your parents. Sexuality, the definition of it is our understanding of our own capacity for sexual behavior. It's how we, what we think about sex and its role in our life. Jesus is going to address and speak to how we understand sex and desire in our life. Now, one therapist equated sex and sexuality to being like a fire. And a fire is, fire is an important part of life. It brings light. It helps us to cook food. It removes bacteria. It brings warmth. Fire is a life-giving presence, but fire outside of its design can bring be a consuming and destructive presence. It can burn someone personally. It can burn a house down. It can be a forest fire that burns a whole community. Sex operates much the same way. Sex can be a life-giving presence in our life. It is the means of creating life. But sex can also be a personally and socially destructive force. So this morning, how can our sexuality and our view of sex be a life-giving presence for us personally and in our story? Now, I want to give a few disclaimers as we, as we head in, because anytime we weigh in a topic like this, there's a high degree of sensitivity that must be acknowledged. So a few things I want to mention. First, we are all sexual beings. All of us can relate to what we're looking at. And also, we all come here with a set of beliefs and opinions about this that have been shaped by our experiences and what we've been taught. No one is here as a blank slate thinking, oh, sex, well, I'm curious what that's about. No, we all come with a degree of views that were shaped by our experiences. Some of you come from homes that never talked about this. And so it almost could feel weird that it's being talked about in church. Others might come from homes where pornography was just readily available. Some of us 
come here, for the most part, fairly free of any pain in this area of life. Others of us come to this conversation having experienced abuse. Some come to this conversation experiencing same-sex attraction and wrestling with gender dysphobia. Others come here struggling with addiction, porn addiction, and wondering if there's any hope for you. We all come with a background and experiences that shape how we engage in the conversation. And here's my hope this morning. My hope is that this can be a part of an ongoing and continuing story in your life that can bring freedom and liberation, that sex and sexuality in your story can be a life-giving source. And it's very important. It's very important, friends, because this is a powerful presence in our life. And you and I and our behavior and our views here can shape our children, can shape our families, can shape our communities. It can lead us from a trajectory toward pain and suffering toward a trajectory of love and redemption. So what we're talking about is important. And so I want to invite you to have the courage to really listen and thoughtfully engage. And my hope, what I'm going to do, often when this is talked about, it's mixed with so much shame and guilt. And shame and guilt is not a, it can only change you for a short season My hope is that we can look at the hope of the gospel, a positive vision that the gospel lays out in our life so that we can pursue a positive path, not just be afraid and live in shame and guilt of another way. So let's look how sex and sexuality can lead to flourishing. First, we're going to see that Jesus deconstructs. He begins, he says, you have heard that it was said. Jesus, in framing these ethics, he's speaking into another person's worldview. You've heard that it was said. Jesus is going to deconstruct a previous ethic. And there's two deconstructions that we want to look at this morning. Uh, First, Jesus deconstructs a legalistic sexual ethic. His first century audience, what had they heard? What had they been taught that Jesus needs to reframe. It's almost, it seems a little clear. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But that wasn't the only thing that they heard. It, that, that's, Jesus is deconstructing a whole way of relating to God that prioritizes external behavior at the expense of internal purity. Jesus is wanting to tear down a way of living that thinks if I just behave the right way, the inside doesn't matter. Jesus is deconstructing this religiosity, this legalistic approach to the law that thinks if I just look the part, the inside doesn't matter. Jesus is deconstructing this. Now, one image that comes to mind, and I, I hesitate a little bit by using it, but just... I think you'll get where I'm going. When I think of a legalistic sexual ethic is uh, Ward and June Cleaver. Now, a lot of us are young here, so you might be thinking, who are they? You know, is that, that was a show, uh, Leave it to Beaver, uh, which happened back in the day. 
And Ward and June Cleaver, the, the Leave It to Beaver wanted to create, it was a show that spoke to the values of American society. And so June, as a mother, uh, always was just a nurturing presence in her children's life. And she, she wanted them to, to not be naughty and, you know, girls were icky. And it was just this clean life. And Ward was the father who always had an ounce of wisdom and spoke into situations. So it presented this way of, this American values way of living. But I, it was interesting because June and Ward, when they, in their bedroom, they slept on different beds. There was this idea that sex was a means of procreation, but you, know, you don't want to put yourself in that position all the time. We can, we can take the picture off. Uh, June and Ward... I, Good people. But what, why, why, what, what's the problem with this? The problem is multifaceted. I want to I hit a few of them. First, the problem of legalistic sexual, sexual ethic is it, minimi- it minimizes the scope of sin. If we just look the part of a nice, clean home and life, then we're good. We're godly. It minimizes the pervasive nature of sin, that it begins in the heart and reshapes our life. Also, this way of living and related, relating leads to a divided self. We can focus on pretending, appearing godly, while the, while the inner life is rotting away can lead to a divided self. Spirituality and godliness can be just about performing and looking the part. I think this is one of the reasons why pornography rates are higher in conservative Christian communities. The state with the highest use of pornography is Utah, where people just want to look the part, but in their private lives, it's very different. Also, another problem and outcome of external religiosity and legalism is it leads to shame. Leads to shame and an unhealthy shame. People feel unlovable, unredeemable, unwanted by God and other people. And then also it leads to self-righteousness. If you're someone who, like the Pharisees, who Jesus is confronting in this particular sermon, if you're good at playing the game, you know, we all know those people who are good at playing the game. We call them teacher's pets. Now, sometimes it's good to be nice to the teacher. I think that, I hope my boys are well-liked by their teacher and by their peers. But I hope that it's an authentic relationship, not someone who just answers correctly when the teacher is looking, but behaves very differently when no one's around. If you're good at playing the game, looking the part, you can grow to think of yourself as better than other people. And actually, you can grow to think that you're entitled by God for blessing. That is the problem of legalism. It's that we think if we obey the law, that God owes us. That's why many sometimes who pursue purity, waiting for marriage... And if the spouse doesn't come, may feel let down by God, that they waited and now God's not coming through on his end of the bargain. Or if they waited for marriage and then they marry someone who 
turns out, isn't someone they'd want to be married to any longer. They feel abandoned by God. They waited, and now God does this. We can feel God owes us because of our godliness. And, and lastly, an outcome is that sex is viewed as scary and wrong. And so there's a lack often of intimacy in our lives when one sees it has a legalistic sexual ethic. And so Jesus is deconstructing this. He's deconstructing this. But it's not this alone. Jesus deconstructs something else. And I think it's a core struggle for our Western culture today. Uh, many of the earliest recipients of the Gospel of Matthew would have had a similar sexual ethic. And it goes like this. In the text it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus doesn't say, it, Jesus, He's not saying, You've heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I say to you, Move past all that silly religious talk. Sex is fun as long as you're not hurting anybody. It's not what he says. He says, but I say to you, everyone, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Jesus here is also deconstructing. He deconstructs a self-gratifying sexual ethic. He's tearing down a sexuality that views sex as simply a means to personal satisfaction. Sex is not another expression of satisfying our inner desires. A number of years ago in the New York Times, there was a really interesting article called Students of Virginity. And it looked at some college students, especially at Harvard, who, um, some students at Harvard who did not have a religious background but wanted to pursue abstinence. And so it was, very, it was very curious about why college students would want to live this way, especially considering what college students have the reputation for doing. And one uh, woman in particular at Harvard, she, she put it this way. She said when she went to Harvard as a fre freshman, she was handed a pamphlet called Empowering You, which was all about how to use condoms and appropriate touches and, and a host of things one can do to experience a sense of satisfaction. And she said... The hookup culture is so absolutely all-encompassing. It's shocking. It's everywhere. And so she was trying to make sense of life and relationships and relating in this hookup culture that's often perpetuated and taught and reinforced in her college campus experience. But then there was another student who had a different view. She said this about sex and sexuality. She said, to say... Because her and others were looking at this person as kind of weird, like, why would you want to pursue virginity? That's what you say. To say that I have to care about every person that I have sex with is an unreasonable expectation. And here's the justification. She's saying, to say, for anyone to say, I need to care about everyone I have sex with is an unreasonable expectation because sex feels good. Feels good. And this is the sexual ethic of our day and age. Sex is a means of feeling good. It is a means of self-gratification and identity formation. Uh, Rene Descartes, a famous philosopher, had the famous line, cognito ergo sum, which you, you may have heard, I think, therefore I am. That to be a human is to be one who thinks. A famous artist, uh, Barbara Kruger, takes this concept and applies it to our modern day and age with this 
this artwork that was actually in the Smithsonian. And, and so here's the image that I think of when I think of this. Thankfully, the image wasn't another, thing, another route we could have gone. But Barbara Kruger, wh why is this in the Smithsonian? Because it's making a philosophical point about what it means to be human. I shop, therefore I am. Our personhood is often tied to having options in consuming. We commodify everything in life. And this is what consumeristic culture does. It, it shapes us. It teaches us that everything, everyone is a means of our end. And so we have possessions. I, I have at my house a toothbrush, thankfully. And I have a toothbrush to brush my teeth. This is crazy. And we have television. A television is there for our entertainment. But what happens when you apply that principle to everything in life? What happens when you look at the environment as not something to steward and to care for, but merely something for your personal consumption? And what happens when you look at a human being as not someone to protect and love and serve and care for, but a person there for your own personal consumption. I shop, therefore I am. I'm entitled to what I want when I want it. I'm a person. I'm an American. I'm owed a meal. I'm owed a car. I'm owed a spouse who is perfect. I'm owed kids who will do what I want. I'm owed sex. And not just sex, but amazing sex. This is the cultural kingdom value that we live in and are shaped by. A fascinating interview back in the 60s between Woody Allen, who's been in the news lately due to the Me Too movement and some indiscretions on his part, and Billy Graham, two very different people. And in this particular interview, Woody Allen, he's, he asked Billy Graham about his views on adultery and sex and marriage. And, and a person stands up uh, during the interview, and they ask Billy Graham, they ask him this. Um, let me find it. And if you, someone stands up and asks Graham if it's true that he believes sex before marriage is wrong. And Graham says, yes, but it's not what I believe, but what the Bible teaches. I, can't we just place it we're back in like... The Cleaver family, back in the 60s, Woody Allen, Billy Graham. You know, and, and Woody Allen chimes in. He says, to not have sex before marriage, that's like giving a driver's license to a teenager without driver's ed. Of course, everyone in, laughs. Woody Allen's so brilliant. You know, of course. Why would you, you wouldn't give a driver's license to someone who hasn't practiced? And then this is like, this is like the adage, the similar line. Why would you purchase a car before you test drive it? It just makes so much sense, right? Of course, what's the fallacy in this line of thinking? What is a car? A car, though you may have named your car at one point in life, a car is something you use to get from one place to another. It is a means of your personal enjoyment or transportation. When you look at a human being that way, a means of just your personal enjoyment and your 
transportation, getting from one identity to the next, you are devaluing that person. Contrary to our cultural belief, the gospel and biblical perspective of sex elevates sex rather than minimizing it. And there are outcomes to this way of thinking. There are outcomes. This way of thinking shapes us, and it leads to certain outcomes, a few of which I want to list. One, we can become a slave to our impulses. We think that freedom is doing what we want, and we simply live in bondage to our desires. We become a slave to our impulses. Another outcome is we objectify others. Others become a means of our enjoyment. And this can be a person that we know. It can be a person on a screen. And it can lead to loneliness and isolation. And this is where this is going. I mean, certainly research is showing how pornography and porn use shapes our relationships. But also the next trend are sex robots. And the idea being that if sex is just a means of personal gratification, I, know, I no longer need a human. Just have a robot, and that can lead to further isolation from others. These are some of the outcomes of our sexual ethic today. And so Jesus deconstructs. He deconstructs a legalistic sexual ethic. He deconstructs a self-gratifying sexual ethic. And he, con- he constructs something. Jesus constructs a sexual ethic. And here's it is. And I, and I want to unpack this definition. So here we go. Sex is designed by God as a sacred act of self-donation and physical oneness and whole life oneness. What is the... Biblical perspective of sex. I think this is how one, we could summarize it. First, we need to recognize that sex is designed by God. God designed it. God wasn't caught off guard when Adam and Eve were having sex and enjoyed it. He, he was, oh, my goodness, I didn't know this would happen. I, I can't believe they're actually enjoying this. No, he designed it that way. In fact, when Adam sees Eve, what's the first thing he do? The first line of poetry in the Bible is Adam. He breaks into poetry. He says, flesh of my flesh. Adam's singing poetry in a song in front of his naked wife, Eve. This is how the Bible begins. And it continues, Song of Solomon. I I wouldn't encourage reading this at a youth group. Song of Solomon, well, just a little taste of it. A couple, it reads, how beautiful you are and how pleasing my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. All right, we'll leave it at that. Chapter 6 of Song of Solomon, the the woman's looking at her naked husband, and she has some observations. What's the point? Sex is designed by God. It is a gift. It is a good thing. Also, sex is a sacred act of self-donation. The biblical concept is two shall become one. Sex in the Bible elevates the person. It's not just a physical act of self-gratification, but actually a sacred and spiritual act of serving and loving another person. And it's physical oneness in whole life oneness. You have holistic intimacy. Holistic 
intimacy. You know, this reminds us that intimacy, holistic intimacy in our life, is different than just pursuing physical intimacy. We should be cautious of pursuing physical intimacy in any way that exceeds your level of emotional intimacy with another person. It's holistic intimacy. And what are the outcomes? What are the outcomes of this sexual ethic? One, it leads to an integrated self. Jesus, again, he's wanting to align your behavior with your heart. It integrates a person. And when we are free to confess and repent and be open to God and pursue him, it it integrates us. We become a whole person. Also, it shows us that we're more than our impulses. As a human being, we're not just an animal prone to give in to our cravings. It elevates our sense of self. Life is more than eating and drinking and sex. Also, in the Bible, sex is actually not required to flourish. In our day and age, one would beg to differ. Sex is seen as almost the peak of life. But in the Bible, sex is just a part of a life of wholeness and flourishing. Jesus doesn't have sex. Paul, many of, the, many of the first missionaries don't have sex. Many people today live wonderful whole lives and don't have sex. Sex is not the answer to human flourishing. It must be enjoyed in the way that God designed it, but it is not the answer. We are more than our impulses. Also, another outcome is this sexual ethic, it protects people. It protects especially women and children. It shapes how we view others. That every man that we see, every boy, every man, is someone created in the image of God and worthy of our love and care. Every woman, every woman is a daughter of God and worthy of our care and protection. We are more than our impulses. It protects people, and also it leads to holistic intimacy. That intimacy, that the physical matches the emotional and spiritual intimacy that we experience. I think one of the ways that this plays out, too, is friendship. When we are addressing the inner lust in our heart, we're now able to have a sense of friendship with the opposite sex. And we just don't look at, and and I think this is often weird in church circles where we're so afraid of sex and we're so afraid of lust and our impulses that we can, you know, it's like that middle school dance scenario. Guys over here, girls over there, and, you know. And of course, we need some sense of boundaries, but when we're addressing the inner heart and seeing others as our brothers and sisters, now we're able to have a sense of friendship. We're not just seeking to use them. So this is the vision Jesus is constructing. Now, I want us to close with getting practical on how we can experience this. How we can find some sexual liberation. How can we construct our life in such a way that it leads to wholeness and flourishing in this particular area? Maybe you're here and you're just thinking, man, nah, pastor, I just, not, not where I'm at, not for me. Hey, 
If that's where you're at, that's where you're at. And I and no one else can change your heart. And so you can tune out the next little bit. But if you're here and you're thinking, you know what? Yes, I want some, I want some wholeness and flourishing and healing in this area. I want to flourish in this in the way that it's been outlined by Jesus in this sermon. I want to give a few practical um, examples and encouragement for you. Again, looking back at what we, we, we mentioned briefly, Jesus, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus is using hyperbole, but he's illustrating something important about how to combat the lust in our life. So here we go, a few examples, how to find liberation. First, understand the power of sex and sexual desire. We need to understand its power. That's why Jesus uses this hyperbole. He, he knows that as a human being, this grips our life and something radical must be done to confront it. That's why he uses this, this metaphor. And as we mentioned, sex is like a fire. And fire is powerful. It can bring life and it can take life. Understand the power of sex and sexual desire. But also, rest in God's grace. Rest in God's grace. Understand the power of Jesus' work on your behalf. We, Jesus, how does he begin the sermon? Blessed are those who are strong enough to obey the rules. No. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In order to understand the law, we must look to the one who fulfilled the law, Jesus. It is Jesus' love and work on the cross that defines our identity, not our behavior. We can rest in God's grace. And this is so important, friends, because this is what will prevent you and me from just living in the darkness of shame. We are loved and healed. I mean, look at Jesus, how he relates to a woman at the well who had been married five different times and now was living with the man she wasn't married to. What does he do? Does he say, ah, I, I can't even. Too much sin, too much sin. No. He goes to her. He pursues her in a world that wants to judge her and cast her out. Jesus brings her in. And to all the Pharisees that think they're better than everybody else because they're doing it right, he pushes them out. His grace, his sheer grace and love of God. We need to rest in that, friends. Also, we need to embrace spiritual habits that lead to purity. We need to embrace spiritual habits. Jesus, he says, uh, in the metaphor, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now, it's easy to see why he would say cut off the right hand. He points to the eye because in the biblical ethic, sexual temptation always begins with how we see. It is why Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully. We need to be wise, friends. We need to be wise. We need to embrace spiritual habits that lead to purity, in the same way that pornography shapes you, 
it shapes your mind. You get a dopamine hit when you do it, and your mind, when you do it enough, it can reshape how you think, how you relate, and view other people. We need habits in our life that shape us. Just a few. Prayer. You, 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 you may notice we often end up at prayer. And for a reason. One of the most, in fact, possibly the most transformative habits in your life in this area can be prayer. Regular, regular prayer. Coming to God. Being honest with God. Asking for God's deliverance. Also, another habit is accountability. Who are the people in your life that you're talking to? Jesus, he's not saying that there's some people who commit adultery and then the rest of us are okay. Some people struggle. No, he knows his audience. We need accountability in our life. Also, avoid and eliminate temptation. Fourthly, and we'll close with this, pursue a new passion. Have a passion that's, just, that's greater than just your sexual desires. Jesus, he connects adultery to the heart. And you need a passion that grips your heart. This is how we will find liberation. Not just when we're afraid of sex and its effects, but when our heart is gripped by a passion shaped by the gospel that calls us to love, protect, serve rather than use other people. Are you open to flourishing in this area? Are you willing to let Jesus deconstruct and then to construct a way of living and relating that can lead to wholeness? Let's pray. Lord, I'm mindful in this area that it is something we all struggle with, experience in one way or another. And God, I, I'm mindful of the person right now here who is maybe sitting in an element of shame, wondering if they're alone, wondering if they belong here, wondering how you view them. And God, I pray, I pray for that person, that man or woman, that, that you would speak to them, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would reveal your grace and your love to them. And you would teach them and all of us that we are not defined by our experiences in this. We're not defined by our sexuality we are defined by your love and grace. And God, I pray for wholeness and healing. I think about our children and what we model for them. I think about our world and the confusion and pain and struggle. May we be a people who embody your sexual ethic that we just don't judge others and think that we're better if we don't do a thing. We don't give in to a way of relating that boils everyone down to means of our gratification. God, help us. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.